This is One American Podcast, and we are live with Judge Napolitano. It is an honor and a pleasure to have you, even though you won't sell me any of your maple syrup. <laughs> Chase, it's a delight to be on with you. I've admired your work for a long time. That uh, introductory video uh, is challenging and enticing. Thank you. And I appreciate that. Jersey, I will give you the maple syrup. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. I can find that. my way to Austin, beautiful Austin. Yeah, come. Come, bring your gun. We'll go shooting. It'll be fun. Yes. Yeah. So I, um, I do want to start off by, I was thinking about what to talk to you about. There's so many things. You're an expert in the constitution, very well uh, renowned for, for your work and your, in your career. And I decided that I wanted to ask you one or two fun questions to begin. Is that okay? Sure. Okay. Have you seen the movie Titanic? I have not. You never saw the movie Titanic. No, you, well, wait a minute. You're the one with Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Okay, I saw it. that. And I saw the old one with Clifton Webb called A Night to Remember. You're right. Okay. Okay. So the Leonardo DiCaprio Titanic, was there or was there not enough room on the door for both of them to survive in the end? (laughs) (laughs) As your expertise as a judge, right? (laughs) I'm afraid my expertise fails me. (laughs) Okay. All right. All right. So the question remains unsettled. It's a a major controversy, but um, it's an honor and a pleasure to have you, like I mentioned, and um, so many things I want to talk to you about. And uh, one of the things I wanted to mention was uh, specifically talk to you about the Hunter Biden laptop story. And I know that you're not intimately familiar with all the details of that. There's still so much that's coming out. But the reason that I wanted to bring it up with you is because I had Jack Maxey on the show last fall. And uh, he uh, is in possession of the laptop. He's in Switzerland right now. And it's very complicated to release something like that to the public because of you know some of the content that may or may not be on it that is uh, potentially illegal, some of the national security issues with that. What does it look like hypothetically from a legal standpoint? Like how does, how does a citizen or a civilian legally leak information on a laptop that may compromise members of the White House? Well, it depends how the uh, how the citizen got the information. I mean, if you're having a conversation with Joe Biden or Donald Trump uh, or any American president and they blurt something out to you that's a national security secret, mm. you are free to to leak that, to release it, to go outside wherever you are when you're with them uh, and announce it. Uh, on the other hand, if you have a national security clearance yourself, and the information was uh, given to you uh, directly, intentionally, or even inadvertently, uh, it would be a felony for you to leak it. Under uh, First Amendment jurisprudence, particularly the Pentagon Papers case, if a national security secret is leaked to the press or any bona fide person in the media, and that would include you and me, um, and anybody who's watching who publishes their ideas or, or, or has a podcast, uh, the leaker can be prosecuted, but not the member of the press for revealing it. So mm-hmm. Daniel Ellsberg for revealing the Pentagon Papers was prosecuted. The case was thrown out because the FBI, as you may recall, broke into his psychiatrist's office to get the psychiatrist's notes so that uh, the, the government – Uh, could use it against him when the trial judge, a wonderful now in heaven, Timothy Sullivan, um, learned about this, he threw the case out. So the thief can be prosecuted. The member of the press to whom he gives it cannot. So with that as a background, it's going to depend what is in there. If there's national security 
information in there from the um, Obama White House uh, if the now president, then vice president of the United States, uh, leaked a national security secret to his son, and it's in the laptop. These are hypotheticals. I don't know that this right. uh, that this happened. Yeah, whoever lawfully has that laptop, unless they themselves are required by statute to maintain the secret, meaning they work for the federal government, they have a security clearance themselves, they're free to leak it. They're free to reveal it. Okay. So my understanding, and I don't know if, if I'm getting this right or not, my understanding of what happened is Hunter brought the laptop to a Mac repair shop and never came back to claim it. I've worked for a business that owns stores like that. Typically, there's like a six-month or a 12-month hold clause in the paperwork where, hey, if you don't come back to pick it up within six months, it's ours, right? So yeah. in the event that that's what happened, hypothetically, and the Mac store owner duplicated the hard drive after it became his intellectual property, according to whatever waiver that Hunter would have signed, if he dropped it off, then it would be okay for that, that person to share that information? Yes, Yes, okay. un- unless in, in the off, off chance that that person is a federal agent or a federal mm-hmm. employee who's required uh, by law uh, to maintain these uh, secrets. It's the same as if Hunter had whispered the secrets into your ear or if old Joe had whispered uh, the secrets into your ear. Listen, the, the president is the only person who can uh, declassify this stuff. If anybody else uh, attempts to declassify it, Let's say Joe Biden, as vice president, told a national security secret to his son. He, just like Hillary Clinton probably did, uh, violated federal statutes for which uh, he could be indicted. But the recipient of that information is not culpable or responsible for the secrecy of it. Right. Correct. Okay. so what if what if the uh, what if the laptop contains illegal content like illegal pornography, for example? then does it become hairy? Because then all of a sudden you're in possession of it. <laughs> all right. Ask me again. What if the laptop, what if the laptop contains like child pornography, hypothetically, not necessarily Hunter's laptop, but any laptop contains child pornography and you happen to like own it now because the owner didn't pick it up six months later. Are you okay, responsible so for owning it or distributing yeah. it? If you share it with, with others? Well, if you share it, you have a very serious problem unless you share it right. with law enforcement. Right. The uh, child pornography uh, statutes or the statutes prohibiting possession of child pornography uh, require uh, the government to prove intent. Otherwise, okay. you could just send child pornography to your worst enemy and call the FBI and, right. and your, your worst enemy is going to jail. So the government would have to show uh, intent. You can look at it to determine what it is, but then you ought to either destroy it or turn it over uh, to law enforcement. But if you share it with your spouse or your children or your next door neighbor or your brother-in-law, you have a problem. Okay. That makes sense. So that being said on the Hunter Biden laptop stuff, obviously when these, when these new articles have come out where the New York times, uh, uh, acknowledges that the, the laptop appears to be authentic. We see other outlets, including the Washington post, even CNN, uh, coming out and, uh, um, actually reporting on some of the alleged contents within it. And I've seen this sort of backlash from the left on Twitter where everyone's like, what is, what about Jenny Thomas's texts? Right. What's the deal? What's the deal with, with, with these accusations here? I mean, I, well, what Hunter, <laughs> you, you, you see that? What Hunter Biden's laptop has to do with Jenny Thomas's texts. Uh, it's, it's almost like an Abbott and Costello routine. Okay. I know. So Jenny Thomas's texts 
are um, absolutely legally protected. They are a communication from her to Mark Meadows alone. And I've read the texts, or at least the ones that are in the public domain. Even if she shouted those texts from a rooftop with a bullhorn, that is not the type of speech for which anyone can be prosecuted. Mm-hmm. The law on incendiary speech is from a case called Brandenburg versus Ohio in 1969, a unanimous Supreme Court opinion, which says all innocuous speech is absolutely protected and all speech is innocuous when there is time for more speech to neutralize it. So if Donald Trump said to the crowd on January 6th, let's go invade the Capitol, capture Mike Pence, uh, kidnap Mrs. Pelosi, and prevent the Congress from ratifying the election of Joe Biden. Didn't happen, but if he did. And there was time for more speech to neutralize what he said. His speech is protected. Now back to Jenny Thomas. Her speech is not public. Her speech is private. It's like you and me having a phone call. This is not private because there are hundreds of thousands of people watching and listening to us at the moment. So she says to Mark Meadows, whatever she wants, Joe Biden stole the election. Take care of it. Donald Trump should be the real president January 21st. Make it happen. Mike Pence is not our guy. See what you can do about it. Whatever she wants to say to him. It's a private conversation. It's protected. Does the revelation of those conversations uh, incapacitate her husband from hearing cases on January 6th on the Supreme Court? Absolutely not. The canons of judicial ethics, which apply to every judge in the country, require that if the judge has an interest in the outcome, a financial interest in the outcome, that she or he must recuse her or himself from the case. And there's a mechanism for compelling that recusal for every judge in the country, except for the nine justices of the Supreme Court. There is no mechanism to compel them to recuse. The other eight cannot say, Clarence, you got to get off this case because you're ruining our, our reputation. They absolutely can't do it. It's entirely up to him in his heart and in his head. If he feels he cannot be fair in, in whatever uh, nine or, or January 6th case comes, if it was Roger Stone or, or Steve Banner or the former president himself, if he feels he cannot be fair because he's been listening to his wife uh, about this for months and months and months, he ought to exercise his uh, judgment to recuse himself. But short of that, he should stay on. Why? Because the canons of ethics do not reach pillow talk. There's a one-liner for you. The, like canons, of, the canons of judicial ethics do not reach pillow talk. If promo code POSO at MyPillow.com, by the way. Promo code POSO at MyPillow.com. <laughs> Where's Mike Lindell when we need him? <laughs> if you, if you, I just gave him a, a shout out. You're going to have to charge him and pay me for that. I'll answer. send him an invoice. <laughs> All right. Um, if they want to go there, if, the, if Chuck Schumer, who has called for the um, recusal of uh, uh, Justice Thomas, or AOC, it was called for his impeachment, which, of course, is, is ridiculous. If they want to go there, then they're going to be inquiring into the pillow talk of all eight justices. There is no basis for that. The separation of powers would prevent it from, uh, from happening, uh, and it would reduce 
the concept of recusal to a level of absurdity. Have there been historical instances of Supreme Court recusals? Yes, there are Supreme Court recusals all the time. I mean, Mm -hmm. John Roberts, uh, the chief justice, was a judge of the um, uh, United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit, same court on which Justice Scalia sat, uh, Justice uh, Kavanaugh sat, uh, Judge uh, Jackson is there now. It's a stepping stone for many to the Supreme Court of the United States. He ruled in favor of the Bush administration in a very famous case involving whether uh, detainees at Guantanamo Bay uh, have the right to habeas corpus. That case was appealed to the Supreme Court. By the time it got to the Supreme Court, he was the chief justice. So how can he sit in judgment of an appeal of his own decision? He recused himself. Nobody forced him to. He didn't make a big deal. He didn't make an announcement. He didn't say why. He just said, I'm not on this case which is exactly the right thing to do. You do it quietly, modestly, silently. Often it's not even noticed. It's just a one-liner at the end of the opinion. The chief justice took no part in this decision. Judge Kavanaugh took no part in this decision. That's the way to do it. Uh, In a trial court where I sat, uh, where you generally know the lawyers, if one of the lawyers finds out that you are friends with the other lawyer, you were at a bar together and you were having a couple of drinks, they'll try and get you off the case. So these things happen far more frequently at the trial level where everybody knows everybody because you all work on the same courthouse than they do at the Supreme Court level where they rarely see the same lawyers twice in their entire judicial tenure. Okay, so this Jenny Thomas controversy for lack of a better term. Um, which has nothing of, whatsoever to do with Hunter L- Biden's laptop. We which can't. has nothing to do with Hunter Biden's laptop. Um, <laughs> goes in conjunction with the uh, with the eight-hour gap, right? So my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, my understanding is that there's a supposedly an eight-hour gap in the the president's phone calls or, or, or call records on the date of January 6th. And people are yes. saying that he must have been coordinating some sort of you know insurrection behavior uh, during those eight hours. So here, here's the law on that. Hmm. If the president discussed national security secrets or anything classified on those phones and the phones still contain that information, meaning they were not true burner phones, he thought they were burner phones, he's committed a felony by putting or, or causing to be put or leaving classified material in a non-classified place. Hmm. However... If they were true burner phones, meaning when you finish using them, they're useless, you can't get any information out of them, or if whatever he discussed in that seven and a half or eight hours was not national security uh, classified, he's free to use whatever phone he wants. And this is not analogous to Mrs. Clinton. Mrs. Clinton's problem was that she, she took classified materials and put them in a non-classified venue, the server in the closet of her home in Chappaqua, New York. That's the felony for which, of course, she was never uh, indicted. Uh, and it, it's, it's really not analogous to the Trump situation unless these were not burner phones and the classified material is still there and someone has them. Interesting. 
So it's it's so funny though. The reporting came out the other day that um, finally the DNC and Hillary Clinton were fined regarding the uh, Russian dossier that they lied about or, or that they fund they lied about funding. Right? Look at the details to see if she just pays that fine or challenges it. She'd be insane to challenge it. Well, they only find her eight grand. About, there'll be a public hearing about what she knew and when she knew it. Exactly. Yeah. It, but it's only eight grand too. To, it, the DNC was fined over a hundred thousand dollars, but Hillary well, Clinton is only personal. The, the numbers are small because they're um, infinitesimal percentage of the, uh, of the campaign's budget. I mean, you know, we're not mm-hmm. talking about somebody who robbed a bank. You want to find them three times what they stole. I don't know how they came up with the eight grand. That is a shockingly, low number I mean, it would cost her more than that of course the dnc more than that to hire a lawyer to challenge it right right so you might as well pay it but it's i and are we ever going to get to a place where our politicians actually advocate for um um uh, more burdensome penalties for campaign finance violations because no, they really no, kind of no, it's not this no, conflict of interest right you know i i have argued you may have heard me say this we don't have two parties in america we have one party the big government party it has a Republican wing, which likes war uh, and deficits and corporate welfare. It has a Democrat wing, which likes war and taxes and individual welfare. And they both do everything they can to stay in power. That's the one thing they uh, agree on. Now, you can state yeah. it differently. Thomas um, or Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson agreed on nothing except this. When the public treasury becomes a public trough and the public learns this, they will only send people to Washington who bring home who will promise to bring home the biggest piece of the pie, no matter which party they're in. That's where we are today, Chase. We've actually been there since Woodrow Wilson, heightened by FDR, but now that's that's where we are. And now earmarks are back. So members of Congress can, you know, send a hundred million dollars um, uh, to University of Alabama. I'm just picking on Alabama. For the Richard Shelby Engineering Center. Yeah. Because he's a senator from Alabama who controls where that money goes. Not picking on him. He's a great guy. I don't even know if this happened, but that's what earmarks. An example uh, of what could happen. Yeah. So let me ask you this. You know, obviously, 2022 is going to be a a major uh, election. Every election is super important. And everyone always says this election is going to be the most important election in the history. We always say that. that, But, you know, it really feels that way, that it's at least going to be very, a very important one. Right. In 2022. And of course, in 2024, one of the major concerns that I have, especially as a podcaster, is um, the censorship that we're seeing and have been seeing on big tech. Right. And it started five or six years ago with uh, um, Alex Jones and everyone said, okay, it's going to end there. They're just going to censor him because he's so crazy and out there. And, and that was where it was supposed to end. And then all of a sudden, you know, it got up to the president and now we see accounts like me, you know, small influencers, uh, uh, even regular folks just, just getting censored all the time, deplatformed from Twitter, uh, uh, censored from YouTube. What in terms of first amendment, is there any feasible, reasonable application for First Amendment protections on these okay. platforms? All right. So there's two ways to look at this with respect uh, to the First Amendment. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first is the truism that the First Amendment only restrains the government, even though it yes. says Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech or of the press. The Supreme Court has interpreted the 14th Amendment as applying the First Amendment to the states. 
And it's not just the states, it's the subdivisions within the state, the city of Austin, whatever county the city of Austin is in, the state of Texas, the same for every, uh, for every state in the union. So theoretically, uh, Facebook is a bulletin board. It's a private bulletin board. It's not owned by the government. Therefore, it can decide whatever it wants to post there. Theoretically, the remedy uh, for Facebook crushing the free speech rights of people, libertarians and conservatives and Republicans, uh, is for somebody like Elon Musk or Charles Koch, who has that kind of money you know, available, liquid, uh, to start another uh, bulletin board. On the other hand, if it turns out that Facebook, and I, and I don't mean to be picking on them, but any big tech, Amazon, sure. Google, whatever, um, is doing the government's business or bidding or is doing this to please certain government actors, then there's a principle of law called state action. And state action is what happens when the government and a private entity are so intertwined that they're in a symbiotic relationship, that they make decisions to help each other, so much so that you can't even tell who made the decision. If someone were able to prove that, then the First Amendment could be applied to Facebook and, and Google and, and TikTok and whoever uh, whoever's doing the, uh, the suppression. It's a That's tough case to show. It is rarely uh, shown. I mean, a classic case is somebody who's in Yankee Stadium and wants to buy a hot dog, and the uh, vendor of the hot dog uh, utters uh, either a racial or a gender-based or an LGBTQ-based epithet. Now, the stadium's owned by the city. The city is subject to the First Amendment. So is the vendor an employee of the, of the Yankees, in which case he can say whatever the heck he wants, may violate Yankee regulations, doesn't violate the law, or does the vendor have the same First Amendment imposition imposed upon him because he's on city property? It's probably the latter. But the Facebook case showing that they're doing the bidding of the Democrats, for example, would be a tough case to prove, though there, there, are, there is some evidence of that. Yeah, um, and, and we, we saw that with certain senators. Uh, Richard Blumenthal of uh, Connecticut comes to mind, has called for certain suppressions, and then they, they magically happened. Mm. Well, the, the big thing that I think of is, uh, of course, after Trump won in 2016, there were all these accusations of Russian collusion. And the big controversy was the Cambridge Analytica scandal, right? It was this argument that Facebook leaked information to Cambridge Analytica, which leaked information to Russian actors who then used that data in order to do targeted advertising campaigns on behalf of President Trump. That was the conspiracy theory, which is exactly what it was. And as soon as that happened, uh, that that conspiracy theory, you know, became promoted in the media. We had Zuckerberg for seven hours on Congress being very intentionally coached and polite to the Senate. Like he was so careful not to offend any of the senators. And you could tell that it was like, and hey, I, we do I, not want to piss off the Senate. You know, I thought he was brilliant, but I also thought he should have thumbed his nose to the government. I'm running a private business. The heck with you. Right now, that never happens. Everybody that goes there kisses their butts to answer their questions. And, and, and while they have a legal right to answer their, ask their questions, they don't have a moral or a constitutional right to compel you to speak because the same First Amendment, which prohibits the Congress from infringing upon speech, prohibits the Congress from compelling speech. 
Now, he probably did the right thing. He was a perfect gentleman. If he was angry, you never saw it. I'm sure he converted some people from being anti-Facebook on the Senate committee to being pro-Facebook by the time uh, he left. But but for uh, the most part, it's um, it's none of their business. I remember uh, this is a Texas observation because he's from Texas. I remember the great Harlem Congressman Charlie Rangel gr- grilling the lawyer for Roger Clemens. Great pitcher for the Houston Astros and for the New York Yankees about whether or not he was taking uh, performance-enhancing drugs. And I got so angry, I'm commenting about this uh, on Fox. I looked at the camera and said, if I were that lawyer, I would say, hey, Congressman Rangel, you write the laws of the land. My guy plays a child's game called baseball, and you're concerned about the contents of his urine? What's in your urine? That's the way I would have responded. Now, that's not going to make you uh, friends with the members of the committee. It may make you friends with the political, in this case, the sports world base, but they think they can drag. Now, this is a, a libertarian land where I live. They think they can drag any private person before them and compel that person to justify their behavior. They can go take a hike. Well, with that, I want to uh, thank you for coming on the show and ask you to share where the audience can find you. Where are you trying to, what platforms are you pushing? Where are you? What's up next for you? Oh, well, if they go to judgenap.com, they'll get everything I've written for God knows how many uh, years. And if they go to Judging Freedom podcast uh, on YouTube, they'll catch me doing this right from this desk in this uh, library about three or four times a day. I do long form interviews like I'm doing with you. In fact, I'd love to have you on. My producer will find you. Um, And I do very short pop-ups. So as soon as the Supreme Court comes out with something, I'm in front of this camera where I am now before my former colleagues at Fox are in front of their cameras and I explain it so that everybody can understand it. (laughs) That's great. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was an honor and a pleasure to have you. Let me know if there's ever anything you need from me. I'm here for you, okay? Thank you. Thank you, Chase. All the best.